Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to the weekly macro call from Washington, D.C. Today's call, as is the tradition, will be led by Chris Zorinsky, our lead international analyst. Joining Chris is John East, our head of research. None of our research goes out without John's approval. Art Gustaville, John Turek. With that quick introduction, I turn it over to Chris to lead today's discussion. Chris. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. John East, I'd love to start quick infrastructure update. We talk about it every week. The last couple of calls, I feel like there hasn't been a ton of movement here. What's the latest on infrastructure in D.C. with the Biden administration and bipartisan negotiations? Well, it will be quick this week. The Senate is in recess. There are negotiations going on behind closed doors, but we're in a sort of quiet period. I still expect that these bipartisan negotiations are going to fail at some point this month. The White House has set an informal date for their conclusion of Memorial Day, which is at the end of this month. There is an appetite amongst some Democrats, many Democrats, in fact, to try to pass a bipartisan traditional infrastructure bill, roads and bridges. I just don't really see it coming together. And so it looks to me like Democrats are going to pull the reconciliation switch, which they would do anyway, and combine everything into one large, roughly $4 trillion bill. So that means that while it's a little bit quiet now, we're about to be entering a time where there's going to be a lot of action and it's going to proceed at a uh, furious pace. So what are they looking for by that Memorial Day date? What's the sign of progress or, you know, hope for a bipartisan deal? Well, frankly, leadership does not have the votes to pass a $4 trillion bill through reconciliation without making an overture to Republicans first. Many Democrats are demanding it. Many hope it would succeed. I don't yet see any evidence that it would succeed, but people are starting to get sticker shock. People also want to be able to say, look, we tried to negotiate in good faith, whether that's true or not, and we couldn't do it, so we had to go our own way. So then if they don't have the votes for the $4 trillion now, so once they've concluded negotiations in good faith, you're saying the Democrats will fall in line. Is there any risk that, you know, individual large pieces of that bill will be stripped out just because of how you know massive it is in relation to uh, any previous package and also the fact that it's one of several that the Biden administration has already pushed? There's always a risk. And there's also a risk that some other event intervenes and you lose votes. So, yes, there are plenty of risks here. Democrats really have no room for any problems, and they are pursuing a strategy which does have uh, members of their own caucus grumbling. Is your final timeline still, you know, late Q3? Or, you know, I, I guess is, reconciliation can be both, you know, positive and negative for the timeline. It still is Q3. The White House wants something done by the 4th of July. I think that's too aggressive a timeline. Speaker Pelosi had wanted a House reconciliation bill by Memorial Day. That's not going to happen while these bipartisan talks are ongoing. Well, it's probably not going to happen. So the timeline, I still suspect, is the third quarter. Okay, thank you. Now, Bart, I'd love to move over to Europe, struggling relatively with their own stimulus package. Uh, what's the latest? latest on approval and disbursement of the next generation EU stimulus plan. 
Yeah, thank you, Chris. In terms of disbursement, it is on track if everything falls into place. This program was meant to start disbursing money in the second half of this year, so that's still theoretically possible. What needs to fall into place is all the national level plans for spending this money need to be approved. That's a process that's now uh, in its beginning stages, but I don't expect meaningful hiccups there. All the plans have now been submitted with with minor disturbances here and there. I expect those to sail through. The, the decision to fund this program with joint bonds as everyone will recall, requires ratification at the national level in all 27 countries. It is delayed in four, uh, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Romania. They also stand to benefit quite significantly proportionally from this program, so it's in their best interest. They just can't get the votes and their coalitions together quite just yet. So that's something to watch. Not a, you know, the EU out of its debt management office is ready to start issuing bonds as early as next month and has everything lined up. Every last approval needs to come through before the first bond can be issued. And they want to issue $45 billion this year, euro, which can be absorbed by capital markets, but does require some planning and, and execution. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, you know, touching on Europe here tangentially, USCR this week is holding a bunch of hearings on foreign digital service practices, uh, namely, you know, tax regimes in a number of different countries, including several European countries and also the likes of India and Turkey. And the, the reason I bring this up is that there is a short-term catalyst for at least some sort of announcement out of the United States. On May 11th, so really only five days from now, the United States needs to make some sort of notification under Section 301. Now, what you know most people think it is likely is some sort of benign announcement with delayed implementation pending you know the OECD uh, digital tax negotiations and broader efforts internationally to reach some sort of agreement but there is a possibility of you know some sort of negative headline risk in relation to this are you picking anything up you know in Europe regarding these digital services taxes are they still pretty positive and optimistic that the Biden administration will be able to you know be a little bit more amenable based upon Treasury Secretary Yellen's comments in finding some sort of negotiated settlement. You know, I think that's the base case in Europe and here, and I think the base case you outlined is, is reasonable. You know, a downside risk, you could say, is the Europeans, for example, have not played ball at all when it comes to Nord Stream 2. So for all this talk of close collaboration in the transatlantic relationship, apparently it's okay to poke each other in the eye every once in a while. I don't think the USTR is quite that petty or the current administration compartmentalizes files really well. So I think the base case is, is reasonable if you outline. But I think Europe should expect occasionally, if, if there's a strong disagreement on things, that, that the U.S. will go its own way as well. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely fair. You know, while we're on the topic of the USTR, I found USTR Ty's comments this week very interesting related to China. We don't need to get into it today, but certainly something for the radar that we're going to be, you know, keeping an eye on is previously Ty had said that the United States would only revisit the U.S.-China trade deal and hold talks, trade talks with Chinese officials, you know, when they were ready. Whatever that meant, you know, it was pretty unclear. Now, at comments this week at a Financial Times summit, she referenced the trade deal and said that they're looking to hold talks with Luha again, who is the principal negotiator with the Trump team, uh, sometime soon. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Now, I'd like to shift into, um, you know, some more EM coverage here and, and talk a little bit about Brazil and Mexico. Brian, Dean, I'd really pose a question to you, starting with Brazil. Budget's clear. We've talked about this on, you know, subsequent calls. There's an ongoing investigation with the president's pandemic response. Is that gaining any steam and does that threaten the reform agenda? The reform agenda was intended to be expedited in the aftermath of passage of the budget two weeks ago, as you mentioned. 
And there have been uh, some high-level conversations between the congressional leadership and the economy ministry, especially on tax reform, where there looks to be a framework for consideration and passage of the tax reform legislation coming in the next, you know, several months. That having been said, as you also mentioned, Congress, at the behest of the Supreme Court, has launched an investigation into the broad issue of President Bolsonaro's response to the coronavirus pandemic. That committee has been formed and it began its deliberations. I don't see much of a chance for this to lead to impeachment at this stage, but what it is doing is it's providing a daily flow of very critical information uh, uh, regarding the Bolsonaro administration's reflecting competence or disinterest in the pandemic. President Bolsonaro has a 35% approval rating, which given what's going on down there is fairly high, and these levels tend to determine Congress's appetite for going after the president. And, uh, you know, I think that at this stage, the president's relatively high approval ratings and his strength within the Congress have protected him now. And I do see tax reform getting through. The, the remainder of the reform agenda is, is in question as uh, we get closer to elections next year and this investigation perhaps takes a toll on President Bolsonaro's popularity. Besides the daily news flow, negative news surrounding, you know, that investigation, the policy environment is, you know, has kind of flattened out and I was just going to say, absolutely. I mean, if you look at just the mechanics, the mechanics are in place uh, better than anybody might have anticipated for passage of these reforms this year. You know, you've got the same economy minister. He hasn't gone anywhere. You've got a leadership in Congress that supports it. And you've got a centrist block even that contains people who don't support Bolsonaro but are committed to passage of the reforms. Uh, and that applies to both the House and the, the lower chamber and the Senate. So, you know, I think that there, there's a very fruitful uh, environment for passage of the reforms, but political considerations, uh, pandemic considerations, and the ever-looming threat of impeachment and political turmoil are the things that could potentially impact how this plays out. Okay, so outside of the policy sphere here, then, John Turek, uh, the BCB's decision yesterday to raise rates by 75 basis points and forecasting additional height kind of provides a guardrail for Brazilian assets, in particular the, the, the U.S. dollar real. Um, you know, what, what other takeaways do you have from the meeting? Yeah, no, I think uh, that, that's exactly the right frame, Chris. I mean, the, the BCB is kind of maybe by force but certainly by action has turned into the adult in, in the room in Brazil where, you know, kind of looking back and what their, you know, I guess this hawkish projector trajectory has come from is towards the end of 2020, they had forward guidance that they, you know, they weren't planning on tightening policy anytime soon. Then fast forward to the first meeting, you know, of the year in January where they dropped the forward guidance, not a long lasting forward guidance, but they say that the drop in forward guidance doesn't mechanically lead to any rate hikes. And in the two meetings since then they've hiked 150 basis points with a promise of another 75 to come. And I think that, you know, the BCB has been actually, they've been quite good at towing the line between domestic economy that's very weak, but also facing these fiscal and inflation risk premium elements that, you know, could, if not dealt with, you know, lead to a structural rise in, you know, what would be their neutral interest rate and kind of getting ahead of that. It's a little pain now so that they don't have to do a lot later. And I think that that has kind of served as a backdrop to, you know, avoiding a disaster and things like Dollar Brazil, et cetera. Yeah. So then do you think that moving forward, then they're, they're obviously putting quite a bit of effort into into this forecast and their forward guidance. You know, there's a chorus of economists who are asking for more hikes rather than what's priced into the market. I mean, is there, is there a case to be made that potentially there will be more rate hikes that eventually get priced in? 
Yeah, I think there's a case to be made just because the market, considering all the factors in Brazil, will kind of trade with this healthy amount of risk premium. But I actually think that, you know, I wouldn't say we're maybe at the turning point in the Brazilian rate hiking cycle, but I think that there is this case that if, you know, fiscal risk premium were to kind of be reduced over the coming months, as, you know, Brian alluded to, then there maybe would be this turn to, you know, maybe towards the back half or in the end of this year where there's this turn back to the domestic economy. But with that said, in the statement, you know, the COPOM was very clear that while they say, you know, like risks are two ways, there are these fiscal and inflationary risks, and there is, you know, this lack in the domestic economy, they find the risks of inflation and fiscal to be, quote unquote, asymmetric. They seem to be, you know, strongly dealing with it. But I think that, you know, that is in part of this partial normalization campaign is trying to be as front loaded as possible. Okay, so moving over to a different central bank decision, then Turkey kept rates at 19, 19%. Uh, you know, we, we've talked at length about Turkey, and obviously their central bank crises, plural, have uh, have taken up quite a bit of attention in the M world. Does this signal kind of like a, you know, return to relative normalcy with policymaking here? And what other takeaways do you have from that decision? Yeah, I mean, normalcy is always tricky when it comes to Turkey, but I would say that, you know, we're kind of in this phase of the worst has been avoided since the, you know, the Nazi Agbal firing at the beginning of March, where the CBRT now in their two meetings post the firing have kept rates unchanged. While they have dropped the tightening bias, they have kept in, in the language of the statement that you know, the April inflation forecast until inflation was to realize materially lower, you know, they wouldn't adjust policies. There is some orthodoxy, despite how insane and chaotic the process has been, that the CBRT is still, you know, has a policy to maintain positive real interest rates. And it doesn't seem like they will turn dovish via rate cuts until, you know, they, they feel like they're back on side in terms of their, you know, April inflation forecast. So, you know, I think that for now, it could be, you know, relatively calm. The question is, for once those inflation prints start realizing a bit lower, does the new CVRT regime kind of overdo it on the cut side? And that will probably be a story for uh, for Q4 this year, maybe Q1 next. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.